Uh, tonight, we're concluding a series that we've been in for the last month called Sink or Swim, Thriving in the Dangerous Middle. We've been exploring the idea that God never promises us. He never promised, and He doesn't promise now, and He never will promise us a safe life. Rather, what God promises us is the best life. And we've been journeying through different stories in the Old Testament for the last month and extracting from these ancient stories some uh, eternal forever truths about what it looks like to not just survive, but to thrive in the middle of God's will. The middle of God's will, which often feels dangerous and treacherous and unsafe, and at the same time, simultaneously, is absolutely the best place to live life. And so we began uh, three, four weeks ago with the story of David and Goliath. And, and these points are in your notes. We just want to recap as we conclude tonight. It began with the story of David and Goliath. And his story told us that what looks like courage in the end always begins as conviction at the start. That there are no naturally courageous people or cowardly people. There are only those who live by the strength of their convictions and those who choose not to live by their convictions. We also talked about the fact that we can thrive in the dangerous middle of God's will with the conviction that God is for us and with us. And then we, we uh, journeyed into the story of Jonah, right? Which is this really obscure, odd book in the Old Testament. And what we found was that God's will calls us to do more than just make a point. God's will calls us to make a difference. We also found in that Jonah story that in the dangerous middle of God's will, our appetite for fairness is replaced by a hunger for grace, compassion, and love. And last week, we looked at the story of the prophet Elijah as he's up on the mountaintop and we asked the question, what is it then that God does in the middle of his will? And what we found was this, that in the dangerous middle of God's will, we must remember that only God can do what no one else can. And we concluded last, last week with this idea, that in the middle of God's will, we must let go of expectations and simply listen for his voice. Tonight, as we conclude, as we wrap this entire thing up, our hope is that the series would come full circle and that we can maybe jump into and explore what does it actually mean for us now, both individually and collectively as a community, to live into and thrive in the middle of God's will for us. What does it look like for you and for me to thrive, not just survive, but to thrive in the middle of God's will for our individual lives? And what does it look like for our church and for our community to together, collectively, thrive in the middle of God's will for us as a community? There's this ancient story, and, and this is the story, the text that we'll be in. It's the book of Joshua. It's one of the earlier books in your Old Testament. And uh, I want to paint the picture for you. Joshua is the successor to his uh, much better known, much more famous predecessor, Moses. Right? Many of you have seen like the Disney movie, The Prince of Egypt. That's Moses' story. So if they were to make a sequel to that movie, which they will not, I don't think, 
uh, it would be the story of Joshua. Joshua is Moses, um, it's his, his successor. And so basically the story of Moses is the story of God calling this man Moses to take his chosen people, the Israelites, to lead them out of bondage and slavery in Egypt and to lead them to what is the land that has been promised to them by God. Now in the Old Testament you have to understand land, geographically land, like physical earth, dirt, land, is immensely important. And so the promised land for the Israelite people is a huge deal. And so Moses takes them to the brink of the promised land. But Moses doesn't get to enjoy the fruits of actually leading them into the promised land. That blessing uh, is, is given to Joshua. So Joshua is the man now that will lead the Israelites into the promised land. And the story we're going to land on tonight is a part of that entire narrative of Joshua leading this nation, an entire nation of people, into the land that God has promised them. And throughout the, throughout the book of Exodus in particular, but throughout many of the, the older Old Testament texts, what you find is that God's will for the Israelite people is that they would flourish in the land that has been promised them. This is God's will for his people. It is the middle, the center of God's will for them. And where we pick up the story, Joshua and his, uh, the Israelite people, they are on the brink of entering into the fullness of what God has for them. And there is something that stands in their way. There is a city called Jericho. And some of you know this story. There's a city called Jericho. And Jericho is one of the best fortified, walled-off cities in the known world at the time. Their army is large and formidable. This is a giant, massive, some would say impossible opponent, an impossible enemy to overcome for this nomadic people who've been trekking through the desert for 40 years. And they get to the brink and they see the walls of Jericho. And this is what happens. This is Joshua chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. Joshua is the leader of the Israelite nation, and God is calling him to lead his people to take this city, Jericho. And this is what happens in the story. Joshua 5, 13 to 15. Now when Joshua was near Jericho, he looked up and saw a man standing in front of him with a drawn sword in his hand. And Joshua went up to him and asked, Are you for us or for our enemies? Neither, he replied, but as commander of the army of the Lord, I have now come. Then Joshua fell face down to the ground in reverence and asked him, What message does my Lord have for his servant? And the commander of the Lord's army replied, Take off your sandals. For the place where you are standing is holy. And Joshua did so. And so Joshua is on the brink. He's got this nation that he's responsible for. And he's on the brink of leading them into a battle that they cannot possibly win. 
and he encounters a man who's got a sword drawn. And so naturally the question is, okay, are you on my side or are you on Jericho's side? He says, are you for us or are you for our enemies? And what Joshua thinks is a man replies this way, and it's so awesome. I'm not on your side or their side. I'm not on either of your sides. He says, I am commander of the Lord's army. And in your Bibles, that word Lord is all caps, right? It's all capitalized, telling us that what he is saying is that he is commander of God's army. Right? And so Joshua encounters this being who is commander of God's army. And he tells Joshua emphatically, I am not on your side. I am not on your enemy's side. I simply am on the side of our God. And then Joshua does something really interesting. He says, well, what do you, what, say, say whatever it is you want to say. He falls face down. He says, tell me whatever it is I need to know. And this messenger of the Lord says, take off your sandals, for this is holy ground. Now, this is in your notes. And this is our starting point, our launching point tonight. In the dangerous middle of God's will, always remember that this is holy ground. Always remember that this is holy ground. You have to understand something about the significance of taking off sandals in, during this time in this culture. For the Jewish people, the feet, actually, and there's all sorts of Jewish literature about this, and the rabbis over the centuries have spoken and written a ton about this. But the feet for Jewish people, just to summarize all of this, this thought and, and literature into the, the simplest way possible, the feet for the Jewish people is actually a very personal and incredibly intimate part of the body. And so to have the feet uncovered, uncovered meaning to have them not, uh, to not wear shoes or sandals is actually a big deal, right? The feet, uh, there's, there's some Jewish texts that actually use the feet as, as um, almost like a, 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 a literary device to infer sexuality. I mean, that's how intimate and personal the feet are in, in Jewish culture. And so to take off your sandals is essentially to be as vulnerable as you could possibly be. To take off your sandals is to essentially say, I've got nothing to hide. This is all of who I am. And so to take off your sandals, and this is not the first time this has happened, right? This story actually parallels the story of Moses in front of the burning bush where God shows up to Moses and says, hey, this is holy ground, take off your sandals, and Moses does the same thing. There's a parallel there. And, and the point of this entire weird deal about taking off your sandals in the presence of God where the ground is holy essentially tells us that the point of presenting yourself in front of God by taking your sandals off is to make the statement or the admission that I have nothing to hide. This is all of who I am. And in God's presence, in the holiness of God's presence, there is no hiding. I simply am 
who I am at my core, in my innermost being in front of God. There is no lying or hiding or manipulating God. I am who I know myself to be. And, and it's an admission that God himself knows me in a way that I may not know myself. It's an admission of God's holiness. Many of you have heard this before, that the word holy essentially means to be set apart, to be so drastically different. And so as the story of Joshua begins, Joshua and the Israelites and the city of Jericho, it begins this way. With Joshua admitting and acknowledging and responding appropriately to the reality that this is holy ground. And there's something really, really important for us to understand. There's a reason why we begin here tonight. The dangerous middle of God's will, as dangerous as it seems, is holy ground. And the reason it is holy ground is because God is present there. Just as God is present with the Israelites, and you'll see this as the story progresses, just as God is very, so fully present with the Jewish people as they take the city of Jericho, he is that present with us in the center and in the middle of whatever his will may be for your life and for mine and for us as a community. And wherever God is, it is holy ground. The ground upon which you tread when you follow God into the dangerous middle of his will is holy ground. Not simply because I'm telling you it is, but because God is there. This is what we have to remember about God's will for us, for you and for me and for us. God does not send you to his will. God is not a distant orchestrator giving you directions and instructions from afar. God's will is not ascending away from God. God's will for your life and for mine and for us is an invitation into God. You ever see little kids? I mean, this always baffles me. You ever see little kids, I mean tiny little kids, when they're, they're in the presence of mom or dad, they're fearless, right? I mean, they are fearless. I've seen little boys and little girls, two, three years old, they could barely walk, climb up to a top of a couch and just jump off. You know what I mean? You've seen this, right? Especially if you go, like, if, if you have kids, you've obviously experienced this. But if you don't have kids, maybe you've got nieces or nephews, or you've got some friends who have really little kids. And you go over to their house, and you're sitting around the couch, and you're having a conversation. And out of the periphery, the corner of your eye, you see three-year-old Bobby just jump off the couch, and, like, he's airborne. Right? It's the crazy. You're like, what is that? He's flying. That kid is flying. And then mom or dad stumbles and they catch him, right? And mom or dad, their heart is beating so fast, it like, feels like it's going to pop out of their chest, but the kid's just laughing. You know what I mean? It's like the best thing ever for the kid because the kid doesn't think that was dangerous. All the kid thinks is, I can fly, <laughs> Right? It's the beautiful thing about a child who trusts their mom or dad so fully. And this is the invitation into God's will, into the dangerous middle of his will. What seems impossible 
three-year-old kids flying is possible in the holiness of God's presence because God loves you and he will catch you and never let you fall, right? Just like the little kid jumping off the couch into the arms of mom or dad, this is the invitation for us. No, it doesn't make sense. People don't fly. And yet God says, step in. The dangerous middle of God's will is not a distant place that God sends you. It is an invitation into him. God is in the middle of his will because it is his will. And so we begin there tonight that in the dangerous middle of God's will, we must remember, always remember, that it is holy ground. That it is holy ground. And because God is there, it is holy. And because God is there, the same old rules that limit our imaginations don't apply. You see, for the Israelite people looking at the fortified walls of Jericho, those walls in conquering that city was an impossibility. It was not only not plausible, it was not only unlikely, it was essentially impossible. It wasn't just a question of manpower, it was a question of skill, it was a question of know-how, it was a question of physics. There was just no way that they were going to overcome what were at the time the tallest and the broadest and the strongest and the sturdiest walls that they had ever seen. They didn't have the weapons. They didn't have the skill or the know-how. They surely did not have the, the trained manpower to make this happen. And physics wasn't on their side. If an enemy is attacking you from the top of a wall while you are trying to climb up, arrows go much faster down than they do up. Right? It's just physics. There was no way this was an impossible situation. And being called into an impossible situation, God begins the calling by reminding Joshua the same rules don't apply. The limitations of reality and reason and logic, the things that squelch your imagination, The stuff that causes fear and anxiety rather than building trust and faith and courage, that stuff on holy ground in the presence of God doesn't apply. And so the story continues like this. It's Joshua chapter 6, verses 1 to 16. These are God's instructions, um, God's instructions to Joshua and the people of Israel. Now the gates of Jericho were securely barred because of the Israelites. No one went out and no one came in. Then the Lord said to Joshua, See, I have delivered Jericho into your hands along with its king and its fighting men. March around the city once with all the armed men. Do this for six days. Have seven priests carry trumpets of ram's horns in front of the ark. On the seventh day, march around the city seven times with the priests blowing the trumpets. When you hear them sound a long blast on the trumpets, have the whole army give a loud shout, then the wall of the city will collapse and the army will go up, everyone straight in. 
And so Joshua, son of Nun, called the priests and said to them, Take up the ark of the covenant of the Lord and have seven priests carry trumpets in front of it. And he ordered the army, Advance, march around the city with an armed guard going ahead of the ark of the Lord. When Joshua had spoken to the people, the seven priests carrying the seven trumpets before the Lord went forward, blowing their trumpets, and the ark of the Lord's covenant followed them. And the armed guard marched ahead of the priests who blew the trumpets, and the rear guard followed the ark. All this time the trumpets were sounding, but Joshua had commanded the army, do not give a war cry, do not raise your voices, do not say a word until the day I tell you to shout, then shout. And so he had the ark of the Lord carried around the city, circling it once. Then the army returned to camp and spent the night there. Joshua got up early the next morning and the priests took up the ark of the Lord. The seven priests carrying the seven trumpets went forward, marching before the ark of the Lord and blowing the trumpets. The armed men went ahead of them and the rear guard followed the ark of the Lord while the trumpets kept sounding. So on the second day, they marched around the city once and returned to the camp. They did this for six days. Now on the seventh day, they got up at daybreak and marched around the city seven times in the same manner, except that on that day, they circled the city seven times. The seventh time around, when the priests sounded the trumpet blast, Joshua commanded the army, shout, for the Lord has given you the city. Do you understand, do you get, can you picture how ridiculous what I just read actually is? God is telling Israel, you are going to take this city. And Joshua says, okay, awesome, God, I believe you, I trust in you. What, what's the way, how are we going to do this? And God essentially says, you're going to walk a 5K every day, and some of you guys are going to play trumpet while you do it. That's the answer. Wait, what? Yeah, no, and also don't talk, it, don't say anything while you do it. So every single day, you're just going to get people together. You're going to get some priests. They're going to blow their trumpets. And quietly, you're going to march around the city. And it's so funny because it tells us, right? The writer of Joshua tells us, the first day, they got together. Priests blew their trumpets. They marched quietly. And then they went back to their camp. And like, that's the end of the, that's it. That's, that's what they do. That's what God calls them to do. Can you imagine what, the, uh, what the, the, the enemy was thinking? What the army of Jericho standing up on their walls were thinking? Can you imagine this? They're thinking, okay, there's the enemy camp off in a distance, the Israelites, and they're coming to take our city. Here they come. Everybody get ready. Grab your spears and your bow and arrow, your swords and your shields. Get ready. Oh my gosh, they're so close. Here they come. And there's like guys down here. They're like, all right, are they coming? What are they doing? What are they doing? Give us a play-by-play. And the guy at the top of the wall is saying, okay, the guy, they're blowing trumpets. They are blowing trumpets right now. Get ready. It, it, it's about to go down. You hear that trumpet sound, right? I think that's a signal. And so they're ready, and they're gripping their swords, and they're ready for battle. And instead of doing anything, they see the Israelites just walk. They just see them walk around the city walls. 
right, with their ark, which is like their most prized possession. Like, look at this, right? It's like, essentially, it's a parade, right? They're like, what are they doing? I'm so ready. And the guys at the walls are like, I think it's a parade. You should come. Check it out. It's beautiful. It's like wonderful trumpet playing. I love it. Right? And they do this parade, and then, they, and then it's like, okay, okay. They, they made one full circle. What are they doing now? I think they're going home. They said march back to camp. They don't just do this once. The next day they come back and they do it again. I mean, can you imagine by the sixth day what the people of Jericho are thinking? Like, I, th- I think they want to be friends, right? Like, I'm just, what is, what's happening? Uh, this is so confusing. And they march around once and they go home. And then on the seventh day, they come back and again blow their trumpets and quietly march around the city. And so for the enemy in Jericho, what they see is something absolutely ridiculous. But on the flip side, can you imagine how much imagination the people of Israel must have had to continue marching? How much trust and faith... But really, let's think about it this way tonight. How much imagination, collective imagination, did they have to say, yes, this is insane and ridiculous, but I will keep on marching. I am not certain how it will end, but I am certain about the God who has called us into this. Can you imagine how much was running through their heads in the middle of this every day, this weird ritual of quietly marching around the walls of a city that they knew God had given to them? I mean, how much collective and individual imagination is necessary to stick it out, not for a day or two, but for seven For seven days, the people of Israel imagined together, collectively, what God might do. And they showed themselves to be a community of faith because of it. And then God shows up. God shows up. This is chapter 6 of Joshua, verse 20. When the trumpets sounded, the army shouted. This is the seventh day after walking around it seven times that morning. And at the sound of the trumpet, when the men gave a loud shout, the wall collapsed. So everyone charged straight in, and they took the city. There's this... um, psychologist named Susan Lynn who wrote a book called The Case for Make-Believe. And in an interview to USA Today, she said this, children use make-believe to conquer their fears and to explore their hopes and dreams. It is in playing that they get to initiate action instead of just constantly responding or reacting. When I was a kid, I played make-believe all the time. 
I didn't have any siblings, and uh, I was home alone a lot, and so maybe I'm psychotic. I probably am a little bit psychotic, but I would, like, talk to myself all the time. I'd, like, be, like, multiple characters. I, mean, I just had this, like, wild imagination, right? And sometimes when I would play with my friends in the neighborhood or at school, we would play make-believe, and we would pretend, and then um, recently I stopped because my wife was like, you should stop. You're 33, <laughs> and so I don't do that anymore. But, yeah, I mean, I was played make-believe a lot when I was a kid. And um, this, this quote from the psychologist Susan Lynn, I, it never dawned on me, but I was thinking back. You know, the kids use make-believe to conquer their fears and to explore their hopes and dreams. And I realized, looking back to the way I played make-believe, and this is probably true for many of you, it was absolutely an exploration of your hopes and dreams. And you didn't even know it because you were a kid, you know? I mean, what, you see boys and girls playing house all the time. Isn't that funny? Like, you see, and, and some of you who have little children in your homes, you have, like in our nursery, we have little fake, you know, kitchen sets, right? Little fake stove and bread and little microwave. And, and for us adults, there's no magic. None of you men and women right now are pumped about microwaving something. None of you. None of you are like, honey, when I get home... I get to push those buttons, and they go like, beep, beep. It's amazing. And then like a minute later, my frozen chicken is thawed. It's incredible. Like none of you are pumped about that. It's so lame. It's like you go, oh, frozen chicken, right? It's like you just want it to be done, and it's all dry, and it doesn't taste good, and you're complaining, and you hate like cleaning your microwave, whatever. But for kids, there's magic in it. It's the weirdest thing, isn't it? It's because we lose something as we get older. We lose something as we grow smarter, as we become more adept at at being people or adults, as we grow into adulthood. We lose the ability to imagine well. We lose the ability to dream huge dreams. There's a theologian that I love Uh, And if you've never read the book Orthodoxy by G.K. Chesterton, I would say it is probably on my list of five must-reads other than the Bible. But in his book Orthodoxy, he says this, Fairy tales do not tell children that dragons exist. Children already know that dragons exist. Fairy tales tell children that dragons can be killed. There's a theologian named Francis Schaeffer who says that the Christian is the one whose imagination should fly beyond the stars because we tread on holy ground and God is here. And where God is, nothing is impossible. God is not limited to the limits and the framework and the boxes of our logic and reason, our intuition or our smarts or our science. God exists beyond. There's a passage in Hebrews all the way in the New Testament. Hebrews chapter 11 is often referred to as the hall of faith. 
And the writer of Hebrews in chapter 11, he begins like listing off all these different people who have ex- exemplified it from the Old Testament. They have exemplified what it means to be a person of faith, someone who trusts, someone with imagination, someone who believed that God could do what no one else could do, that God could do the impossible, and that the impossible would in fact become true if we were living into God's will. Hebrews 11 just rattles off all these people who lived their lives that way. People like Enoch and Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and Moses. And then Hebrews 11 gets down to this portion of the Old Testament story. And here is what Hebrews 11 verse 30 says, by faith the walls of Jericho fell after the army had marched around them for seven days. The writer of Hebrews, in referring to the story of Jericho, does not mention Joshua. And the writer does not mention anybody else. In fact, the only character from the Jericho story that the writer mentions is a prostitute. A Gentile prostitute named Rahab in the very following verse. It is almost as if the writer of Hebrews is telling his Jewish audience, listen, The story of the walls of Jericho crumbling, that story is built upon not the faith of one man, but the collective faith of an entire nation of people who said yes with imagination to doing what seemed so ridiculous at the time, marching around city walls. And so the question for us individually and collectively becomes, what might it look like if and when we make the decision to live life this way with a collective imagination, beginning to dream bigger dreams? Uh, I love snowboarding. I'm not a good snowboarder, but I love snowboarding. And a number of years ago, when I first started snowboarding, I made the mistake, the very first snowboarding trip I went on, it was actually the second, uh, but the, so the second snowboarding trip I ever went on, I went with a bunch of friends, like four or five friends, who were like super, super great snowboarders. I mean, these are like double black diamond, do all the jumps, right, tricks in the air. It's like those sorts of guys. And I went with them, and I'm a total novice, right? I'm like a stud, barely a stud. Not, I'm not a stud even on the bunny slopes, right? I, just, I'm, I caught myself lying three times right now. Wait, why am I telling these people I'm a stud? I'm not. Even on the bunny slopes, I'm like, <laughs> right? Like, totally, it's so bad. I'm like not a good snowboarder even though I love it. And, and so we go up, and the, my friends are super cool with me. They're really nice. They're like, yeah, let's just do the bunny slopes a few times, and we'll kind of ride down with you, and we'll, sh- you know, like show you the ropes, and it's easy, man. You'll pick it up real fast. And they underestimated the, the, the magnitude of my lack of coordination, right? So you could tell, like, you know, 30 minutes into us being on the bunny slopes, they're like, okay, (laughs) like, is it cool if we go, right? They've got that look on their face. And so I look at them and I say, guys, like, I feel really bad. You all paid for your lift tickets today. You all paid a lot of money. You don't have to stay here with me. You just go and do your own thing. I'll be fine. Like, you know, whatever. I'll find you in the lodge. It's fine. We'll meet for lunch. Just go. 
And it was like really cool thing happened. Uh, they're all looking at me. And they're like, no, man, we're not going to do that. I mean, it was like this really nonchalant response. They're like, what's the point of that? I was like, well, you guys are really great snowboarders. There's like all these really, really cool places where you can snowboard here. And I feel like you're not doing that because me, because I'm terrible, right? And you feel like you got to just kind of be here with me. And their response to me, all of them, one way or another, was essentially, well, dude, the point is not. The point is not for us to go further, faster on our own. The point is that we have a good day together, that we've got stories to share at the end of today, and we want you in those stories. If we just go off and snowboard by ourselves, like, what's the point? Like, you at the end of the day, the four of us are going to be sharing stories and you're going to be talking about how some five-year-old schooled you on the bunny slopes. I was like, dude, that's awesome, you guys. Thanks. I started crying and I didn't cry. But, <laughs> right? And, and so they snowboarded with me, right, on the bunny slopes. And eventually we got up to like, not bunny slope status, but definitely not like double black diamond or anything. It was just like skiing and snowboarding these like really kind of intermediate slopes. I'm falling left and right, but these guys are sticking it out with me. And, and at the end of the day, I remember we got back and there was no sense of frustration for them, you know? When we got back to our hotel and they were like, and everyone was laughing, and mostly it was laughing about me and how bad of a snowboarder I was. But we had stories to share together. Here's what I know about us as a community. This thing right here, what is happening right here, right now, all of you in this room, me talking, Ryan talking, the band singing, all of this, everything that happens here, you have to know that this is simply God doing the impossible. Ryan and I were just talking uh, before services started tonight. It was cool for us, the two of us, to talk and remind one another about the fact that five months ago, we had no idea we'd be here. Five months ago, Awakening Church was a dream. It had no location. In fact, many of you don't know this, we had location after location after location after location shut down on us. Like, oh, we, f- we think this location's going to work out? No. Oh, we think this is going to work? I think this is going to be great? No. Even after we got here, we, mo- we-, we came to Del Mar thinking we we're going to be in the theater. And like two weeks into the theater, they're like, hey, can you not use the theater? I mean, it's this amazing story of, of God sending us here to this cafeteria and finally getting here and it dawning on us, this is where we needed to be, always. And here's the beautiful thing about treading on the holy ground of God's presence. God saw this moment. He saw your faces and me and the band and everything happening here. These chairs and that sound equipment. All of this. God saw this. He saw this before we ever did. 
And the goal for us, if we are to be shaped as a community of faith that not only survives, but thrives in the dangerous middle of his will for us, is that we would fight hard and pray even harder to have vision, to see the way God sees, that we would live with a collective imagination, that we would begin to trust and believe not only that dragons exist, but that in God, dragons can and be slayed, that a, a, a little slay, a, a little shepherd boy like David can march into a valley and slay the impossible giant, that Jonah would be sent to a pagan city called Nineveh and the nation would return to God, that Elijah in his most broken moment when he needs God to speak in a massive way would hear God speak unexpectedly in a gentle whisper and that whatever walls stand before you and as tall and impossible as they may look, if you would say yes to God's invitation to do the ridiculous, to march silently, that God would do the impossible because in him it is all possible. This is what it means to thrive in the dangerous middle of his will. Would you close your eyes? And I'm going to pray for you in a second, but I want to ask you some questions. And I hope these questions get your imaginations going. What, what would it look like? What would it look like if the impossible walls in your personal life came crumbling down? To what or whom have you surrendered your imagination? Is it possible that it is time for you to reclaim your imagination in the name of Jesus? Might God encounter you there and fill you with hope for a brighter tomorrow? What might God do in and through us if we lived as a community of faith, recognizing that the ground we tread is holy, that God is here, and that anything is possible? And what might happen in our church and in our city and in our world if we lived with a collective imagination, believing God to be who he says he is and that he will do what he says he'll do and that there is no giant or wall too big or too impossible? God, would you break into our hearts tonight? And would you rip out the cynicism and the disbelief and the fear and the anxiety? And in their place, would you fill us with hope, with vision, with dreams, with imagination, with joy, with peace, with grace, with love? And would you fix our eyes and our hearts and our minds on your greatness? On your greatness. 
that with you all things are possible. We love you, God. In Jesus' name, amen.